there are significant parallels between revival and nuclear fission? Seriously, I'm not kidding. A very strange occurrence happens just before the splitting of the atom. The nucleus of the atom actually depresses. It's, it's reduced, weakened, and, and deflated. Ain't nothing happening. That can't be good if you're trying to get that little atom to reach critical mass and make a big boom. You know, that's what happens just before there's a revival, an explosion of God's glory on the earth. Hi, everyone. I'm Bill Nordstrom, and welcome to the program today. Intensive revival prayer is seemingly going up everywhere. There's a rising tide of expectancy, but like the hoped-for splitting of the atom, nothing seems to be happening. We hit a brick wall. We're drained. All the prayers seem trapped in our mouths, and nothing seems to be getting past the ceiling. Yep, it takes everything in us to keep going. Yep, maybe we're headed for another one of those revival near misses. I think 90% of revival is getting to the point of where there's an unshakable resolve. God takes some risks here, the potential of his children walking away in frustration and confusion. So what do we do when our weeks, months, and years of prayer seem to have fallen on deaf ears? Well, we go back to splitting the atom, something so small but seemingly impossible to split in half. Do you know what those scientists learned to do? They continued to bombard that depressed atom by intensifying the neutron beam. They committed to do it until fission actually takes place. They're determined to keep moving forward, not relying on what they see, but what they know will happen if they stay with it. And I submit that's what the church must do, especially in this season. Solomon had some insight on this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. I love that verse. I use it all the time, especially at my age. But then Solomon adds this to it. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. God's bringing revival. The apocalyptic scriptures make that very clear. And that coming revival will be greater than any of its predecessors. Like David cried out after a big sinful disappointment in Psalm 51 verse 10. Listen to his heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Renew it, Lord, David says. I had a, a pretty determined heart a few years back, but my recent sin, Lord, seemingly disqualifies me. Why does God allow such a long stretch before our prayers reach critical mass? For one thing, this is a coming end of an age outpouring of the Spirit that'll change everything on the earth and open the heavens of eternity for a glory humanity has awaited since the garden. And I believe how we carry our hearts now before God in humility, in brokenness and weakness has a lot to do with it. Listen to the famous revival verse in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then, God says, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. 
that's done in humility. God must know by now he has some earthen vessels who will not rely on circumstances any longer. We must press through for what I like to call big prayer, strategic prayer, strategic level intercessory prayer, if you will, life-changing prayer, having a clear awareness the Godhead sees and hears the unusual spiritual tensions and agreements among the saints on the earth a travail that's creating a hush in the heavens and a case of nerves for the powers of the air, having the ability to see the big picture, a promised kingdom in the heavens, God's kingdom, is about to come to the earth, causing people like you and me to leave the legitimate pleasures of life and give ourselves to the things that matter most to the Lord here and now. You know, turning from wicked ways would seem a bit strange at this point. Certainly, the Lord knows we're getting our lives in order, that we've abandoned habitual sin. After all, we're intercessors. But perhaps he wants to deal with something more intense and much deeper in our lives. Our repentance has dealt with what we've done. That's in the past. We've been forgiven of sin through the blood of Jesus, But the Spirit wants to bring purification, a sanctification, an unusual separation from the world that examines our character so he sees what we really are. The psalmist knew that. Psalm 103, verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. You know, while Moses wasn't perfect, he did walk with God. God gave Moses the law, the intimate details and insights into his ways, the ways of God. But it remained necessary for God to demonstrate his acts, his miracle powers with signs and wonders. It was necessary for him to demonstrate those to the people, to the people Moses led. So they'd keep putting one foot in front of the other during a 40-year jaunt in the desert. Might that resemble the church today? It, It seems for so many of us, we're just not there yet. You see, turning from our wicked ways doesn't just mean to repent. We've done that. If you're anything like me, you do that on a very regular basis. When Jesus went into the garden just before his crucifixion, He wasn't there to repent from sin. Jesus spent those agonizing moments being examined by his Father. God was making his ways, his ways clear to Jesus. Though he was a man like us, yet without sin, I believe the Holy Spirit was giving the Son of God a a final test of his ways. Jesus was in agony. He was sweating drops of blood. And what was Jesus' response? Father, if it's your will, please take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus came into a full confidence of the ways of God, and thank God he did. I believe God's using that model to examine his church in these risky days. He knows what's coming. And he knows what will be necessary for the body of Christ to endure the dark night of the soul. He knows we'll be on the mountaintop one minute and run over by a train the next. Remember Joseph barely recovered from his wrestling match with the angel 
When he wakes up in a pit, how about David? He was still hearing the chant of the crowd about how he handled his ten thousands. When he wakes up in a cave, being hunted by Saul, and Jesus' ears were still ringing with the hosannas while entering Jerusalem, while now blood vessels are bursting from his skin, while he prays alone in the garden and his disciples sleep. So what does all this have to do with revival? an apocalyptic revival that will shortly be followed by the return of the Lord himself. It has everything, everything to do with travailing, agonizing, intercessory prayer, while the Holy Spirit examines our hearts and our ways for the journey ahead. The Apostle Peter makes clear that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Therefore, Peter says, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. I absolutely believe God is now examining the church, perhaps like no other time in history. We're about to reach critical mass in an apocalyptic revival that will usher millions from every walk of life, religious persuasion, and spiritual condition, welcome them into the kingdom of the beloved Son in whom there's redemption and forgiveness of sin. Repentance rids us of sin, but deep examination of our ways brings the necessary condition that allows us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For fire to fall and consume the sacrifice, it must be innocent without blemish. But most of all, listen to this, most of all, it must be on the altar to stay. So often we have sales reps in our churches instead of channels for glory. We do things right, but we don't always do the right thing. Just continuing to do things right will only postpone the needed pouring out of ourselves as a living sacrifice. we got to be poured out to God, and that will be reflected in a prayer life that sees mountains moved, churches exploding with corporate prayer and fasting. So what's the key to a revival that garners the attention of the nations, has media looking for language to even describe these strange happenings, an awakening that allows us to become disgusted with our evil and dissatisfied with our good? Remember the atom, how its nucleus had become shrunken and depressed just before the split? Then suddenly... In its depressed condition, it explodes. Listen, many in the church may be depressed, and maybe you're one of them, but it's from that condition of exhaustion the sovereign God pours out, pours out his power that will change the earth and usher in the coming of the Lord Jesus. Put yourself on the altar and listen, more importantly, stay there till God strikes the match and you become that holy sacrifice, that living sacrifice God sees as holy and acceptable. Let's pray. Father, examine our ways, our tendencies, our habits, beliefs, and attitudes. 
My Lord, we want to be found holy and acceptable. We desire to stand in your presence without sin or guilt, as if sin actually never existed in our lives, Lord. Possessing tender souls that are teachable and correctable, Father, the day of your glory and the presence on the earth are are soon to come in the person of your Son. But first, we must endure persecution and tribulation. Your church has never been without that. But then your Son makes clear that while lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Father, help us in these days to present our bodies a living sacrifice on the altar, holy and acceptable. And Lord, help us stay there till you return. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. My friends, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And Maranatha, I'm Bill Nordstrom.